Cholera, plague, Japanese encephalitis, typhoid, typhus, trench fever, yellow fever, dengue fever, diphtheria, dysentery. That's just a sampling of what I could face on an upcoming four-month solo trip around the world. According to the experts, I wasn't supposed to drink the water, eat the food, or kiss the women. Walking barefoot or swimming in fresh water, definitely out. But there was one thing I feared more than any ghastly developing world disease, and I'll get to that a little later. So this trip took place in 2007. I've been working as an editor for PC World Magazine for 16 years. One day, laid off. A month later, my girlfriend gave me the 
heave ho. <laughs> so I moped around my apartment for a couple days, and then I moped around the coffee shop, and then I moped around the gym, and then I started moping around the local bookstore. And I found myself in the travel section. And I started thumbing through all the rough guides, the lonely planets, and you guys have seen these books, and gorgeous photography, and the sumptuous text about the places you'll go, and the people you'll meet, and the things you'll do. And pretty soon I could, I could smell the coconut suntan lotion. <laughs> I could hear the bellowing of howler monkeys and the screeching of macaws. But there was one thing that concerned me. Every one of these books had a graphic, detailed passage on sexually transmitted diseases. So my, my first reaction was, whoa. Then I thought to myself, wait a minute. Maybe these world travelers are a friendly bunch. <laughs> so using the books, I went ahead and booked a four-month solo trip around the world. This is not going to work. So I started in Boston, went to Venezuela, Greece, South Africa, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Australia, New Zealand, and back to Boston. Now most people, when they go on an exotic trip, when they get home, they rave about the food and the sights and the friendly local people. I'm not going to say that they're lying. I'm just going to say my experience was a little different. And I take some responsibility for this. Before I went on this trip, I was not an experienced traveler. I'd been on two-week vacations to Canada, I'd been to Mexico, I'd been two weeks to Europe. But this is four months of solo travel. And you don't really know if you're configured to do this until you actually do it. And I'm not going to lie, for large portions of the trip, I had a rotten, miserable time. And I take some responsibility for that. Again, I was not an experienced traveler. Um, also, I'm not the hardiest person in the world. I'm not big on you know, loud noises, weird smells, or being crammed together with people who sweat. <laughs> Public toilet seats, you know, some people put down one layer of toilet paper. I put down three. <laughs> Another issue is I spent a little, much, too, little too much time on the internet. So after I'd gone ahead and bought the tickets, spent all this money, booked all this stuff, I couldn't stay off the internet. And guess what I found? <laughs> so this, this is a slide from the Center of Disease Control. Oops. That's not supposed to happen. A lot of red. Those, those are all the... Uh, Nah. <laughs> oh, there's always the, we, got, we got another comedian here. Oh, That'll fix you. So as I was saying, this is a map of the diarrhea hotspots around the world. And the black arrows are right where I was going. So uh, yeah, I was going to be hitting all the diarrhea hotspots. But there was one thing that concerned me even more. We have any doctors out there? 
Okay, there's, a, there's something called guinea worm disease. Anybody heard of this? No. no. Okay, so I, earlier I mentioned that the experts, they don't want you, certain countries, they don't want you drinking the water or swinging fresh water. And what they're concerned about are parasites. And one of the parasites is called guinea worm disease. And the way this works is you ingest some infected water, parasite gets into your body, and over the course of time, it grows into a three-foot worm that apparently you can feel crawling around under your skin. And then when it's ready to reproduce, it pops its head out of a blister in your foot. I hope I didn't traumatize I hope I didn't trigger anybody. I, I, really, I really need this. Get, what the? Oh, jeez. So that's when I decided to consult an expert. Six weeks before my departure, I find myself in the waiting room of a Boston travel vaccine clinic. A nurse wearing a black hoodie under a lab coat hustles me into her office. Her computer has a bumper sticker. I stop for entrails. <laughs> so she asks, where are we heading? Uh, let's see, I'm going to Greece and South Africa, Thailand, Venezuela, Vietnam, Cambodia, Australia, New Zealand. Wow, wish I got that much vacation. Actually, I, I just lost my job. Aw, bummer. She taps her keyboard and looks directly at me. You're going to need seven shots, three more visits, and we'll need some blood. <gasps> A newbie, eh? You'll be fine. Then she hands me pamphlets on malaria and something called chicken gunja fever. <laughs> then she starts doling out the prescriptions. If you get the runs, in Vietnam, take ciprofloxacin. In Thailand, take azithromycin. In Cambodia, I want you to take Pepto-Bismol daily. It can turn your tongue black, but what? some women might like that look. By the time she finishes with me, I'm afraid to leave my apartment, never mind the country. But there's no turning back. I've already spent $6,000 on plane tickets. I better come back with something that doesn't require antibiotics. A job, a woman, or at least some material from my Match.com profile. <laughs> Best thing of all, the nurse said where I'm going, no guinea worms. So, I was off. <laughs> On August 28th, 2007, I depart for Venezuela with one piece of luggage, my new $200 backpack crammed with overpriced travel clothes, medications, water purifying tablets, earplugs, nose plugs, <coughs> dust masks, safety pins, bobby pins, duct tape, scotch tape, surgical tape, Allen wrenches, and other gear recommended by the guidebooks. As the flight attendant discusses water landings, sweat collects beneath the money belt strapped under my pants. I glance at my seatmates, two women sucking on hard candies. They don't seem worried. Last year I went to France and came back in one piece. But Venezuela is a little more dangerous than France. Okay, it's a lot more dangerous than France. Okay, it has one of the highest murder rates in the world. And at the Caracas airport, a driver is picking me up at the international terminal just to drive me 100 yards to the domestic terminal because it's not safe to walk around outside. But if some hoodlum draws a weapon, I'll just fork over the decoy 
travel wallet around my neck. Containing $20 and an expired Macy's charge card. These guidebooks know all the tricks. As I'm adjusting the decoy wallet, I hear a loud crack and my seat cushion, which I've heard can double and clutch my seat cushion, which I've heard can double as a flotation device. A cloud of cinnamon stings inside my nostrils. The woman next to me is chomping on a fireball. I sneeze into the sleeve of my moisture-wicking Oxford and resume my personal inventory. A hidden security pocket in the shirt contains photocopies of my passport and credit cards, plus U.S. consulate phone numbers for the seven countries I'm visiting. My money belt holds my water plane tickets, $500 in cash, and a list of Western-trained doctors on each continent. I've... I'm not done yet. I've emailed myself scanned images of my tickets, passport, and immunization card. I've taken every precaution recommended by the guidebooks and the State Department. The rest is up to fate. There's a tap on my arm. I instinctively cover my money belt with my hand. The woman next to me smiles and hands me a jawbreaker. Her elbow brushes mine. I relinquish the armrest and stare at the ceiling. The seatbelt sign goes off. The drink cart is free to move about the cabin. So this was my first stop was Venezuela. So we're, we're right there, base of, the, okay, base of the Caribbean. And what I was doing is so, uh, so I was going to go windsurfing. There's an island, the second arrow, it's called uh, Margarita Island, world famous windsurfing uh, area. So what I had to do, I was flying into Caracas. So the windsurfing company gave me these instructions. So I flew into Caracas and they said, you look around for a guy with a sign with your name on it. I found the guy. He grabs me by the hand. He takes me out to the curb. We get into this huge black SUV. We drive 100 yards to the domestic terminal, international terminal to domestic terminal, big black SUV. We get out. He grabs my hand. He takes me inside and he buys my domestic ticket. And he points to a chair and says, you stay there until they call your flight. That's exactly what I did. I get it. Caracas is a dangerous place. Another issue I had with the trip, I take some responsibility for this, but so this whole notion of budget travel, you know, it's also called backpacking. And most people, when they go backpacking, they're how old? 20? 20. <laughs> I was 47 when I took this trip. Uh, and this whole idea of living out of a backpack, so that's the actual backpack I took on the trip. So basically, if it doesn't fit in the backpack, it doesn't go on the trip. Actually, I took two, two backpacks, the little red one over there. I'm going to show you how this works. But basically, so if it doesn't fit in the backpack, it doesn't come on the trip. So I was basically wearing the same clothes for four months. I did wash them, but when I got home, some of them had to be burned. Some of them were fine. Actually, I took these pants and this shirt. Took them on the trip, washed them. They smell, you don't smell anything. Okay, yeah, they're, they're, they're okay. But this whole idea of living out of, a, living out of a backpack. So the way this works, so you have two backpacks. One goes on the front, and in here you put your water, your map, your tickets, anything you're gonna need right away. And on your back goes the big one. Any hikers out there? Okay, so if you know anything about hiking, you've got these, these hip straps. You don't use these on, you have the strap clip behind you, so this thing can go through 
X-ray machines. You can pop, actually this, now, nowadays you couldn't take this onto the plane, but when I took the trip, I was able to take this onto the plane so there was no checking it, no losing it. So if you see anyone walking around town and they've got two backpacks on, they got the front one, that's usually the giveaway that they're, they're, not, just, they're not just passing through, they're, they're traveling for a period of time. So, okay, so one problem, living out of a backpack, same clothes. Another issue was, so I was not, I was gone for four weeks. 16, I was gone for four months, 16 weeks. I couldn't afford to stay in high regencies every night. So the, the, all the guidebooks, they recommend you stay in a hostel. And to who stays in hostels? They're called youth hostels for a reason. So here we are. <laughs> We're in New Zealand, I'm out with all my hostel mates, and yeah, they're all in their 20s, and they're like, ah, oh, this is great. Yeah. And there's me in the corner, just get me the hell out of here, please. <laughs> Another issue, the flights. So I was not flying first class. I was not flying business class. I was barely flying coach. So a lot of my flights were red-eye flights. Uh, one month I took three red-eye flights, uh, also, a lot of these flights, not only were they red eyes, but there were multiple stops. So anytime there was a stopover, I made sure that the stopover was between four and five hours. So that way if the flight came in was late, or if I had trouble getting through customs, you know, I had a window, because if you miss one of these flights, it's cascading effect, then you, you could be stuck someplace. So here's, here's a, some, some of the red eyes. So yeah, Venezuela to Greece, that's standard, you know, going to Europe, not so bad. Uh, Greece to, to South Africa. Not so bad, same time zone, it was still 10 hours, it was still a red-eye flight, but it was, it was pretty much direct. The absolute worst flight was from Cape Town, South Africa to Bangkok. And the problem with that was, uh, yeah, multiple stopovers, <coughs> basically between the stopovers and the flight itself it was <coughs> about 28 hours. Um, and actually, so that's a selfie when I got off the plane. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the problem with this was, okay, so I left Cape Town at 7 a.m. I went to Johannesburg, waited around for four hours, got on a flight, went from Johannesburg to Hong Kong, five-hour stopover, Hong Kong to Bangkok. So I left at 7 a.m. I arrived at 4 p.m. the next day. Uh, and then there was a five-hour time change on top of it. So this was not a lot of fun. Uh, and I mentioned a youth hostel filled with youths. <laughs> Still, there was one thing I feared more than a youth hostel filled with youths, and I'll get to that a little later. <laughs> Another issue was, for some reason, I read all these guidebooks, and I was like, oh, this is going to be fun, and everything's going to be great, easy, and so my expectations were a little out of line. So uh, one of the things I was doing was I was going windsurfing. I was a inter beginner, intermediate windsurfer, so if the winds were 15, 20 miles an hour, I was fine. This is, uh, oops. <laughs> so this is a photo of windsurfing in Venezuela. Uh, nice and calm, 15, 20 miles an hour. Didn't get murdered even once. Fabulous. <laughs> Next stop was Greece, an uh, island called Kripathos. Uh, and as you could see from my scrolling, the winds were a little more than I was expecting. So it was more like this. Was, I mean, it was 30, 40, 40 mile an hour winds. Um, I started on the adult beach. They grabbed me by the ear and they moved me down to the kiddie beach. 
It was still too strong. I spent most of the time in the water, caught a cold, rotten, miserable time. <laughs> Next place I was going to go windsurfing was South Africa. So again, I'm expecting something like this. I'm in Cape Town, supposed to be, you know, good windsurfing there. And I'm thumbing through the travel literature, and I noticed that there was another activity in the same, <laughs> same waters where they were having the windsurfing. And that activity was called shark cage diving. And the way this, way this works, whoops. <laughs> the way this works is you pay someone a lot of money, they take you out in a boat, they put you in a cage, they drop you over the side, and you can pet the great white sharks. So I thought to myself, okay, let's see, uh, great white sharks windsurfing, great white sharks windsurfing. <laughs> Do you guys recognize that photo, that painting? Yes. Museum of Fine Arts. Yeah. Uh, Windsurfing great white sharks. Windsurfing great white sharks. No, thank you. Another issue is okay, all these guidebooks, they have lists of things to do when you're in whatever the country is. So I tried some of those things. Um, so in uh, Cambodia, anyone heard of Angkor Wat? Okay, so this is the largest religious structure in the world. It's in Cambodia. And if you go to uh, if you're going to go to Angkor Wat, you stay in a town called Siem Reap. So I went to the I went to the uh, Angkor Wat. I saw the temples. Okay, it was fine. Uh, but I, you know, after one day of this, I, I was I was done. Another activity they had in Siem Reap was the crocodile farm. So you could go to the crocodile farm. You know, I'm thumbing through the literature. It's like, okay, they got photos. You know, 16, 18 foot reptiles. Um, here's another photo. This is an aerial photo. It's, you've, got, you've got a nice little reptiles, and they're out there sunning. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's walled in. But one thing, I, I walked up to the, the place, and I was looking around, and outside of one of the walls, there was a uh, swimming hole filled with little kids. Mm, no, thank you. And another activity called Thunder Ranch. This was also in Cambodia. It's uh, just, just outside Phnom Penh. And uh, everybody familiar with the history of Cambodia, especially 70s, 80s, and 90s? Pretty, yeah, pretty harsh. Uh, it basically was 30 years of uh, genocide, civil war, invasion by the Vietnamese, uh, more civil war. They didn't have, basically didn't have a stable government until the late, late nine, 1990s. Uh, I was there in 2007. Seemed stable from what I could tell. But the upshot was you had large... Uh, portions of the population running around with military-grade weapons. So some of these entrepreneurs got together and were like, okay, we got, yeah, we got a lot of tourists coming in, we got military-grade <clears throat> weapons. How about a shooting, uh, sh a shooting range? So my understanding of how Thunder Ranch worked, you go and they give you a menu, column one, drinks, column two, military-grade weapons, column three, livestock. So you get a martini, rocket launcher and you can blow up a cow or if you're more of like a kind of a white wine person you get a nice sauterne machine gun you can shoot some chickens no thank you and these this, these are things that were absolutely not my fault these were just errors omissions inaccuracies in the guidebooks and the travel literature and uh, one of them okay so this is this is Melbourne uh, this is the historic Flinders Street train station why don't I just read you a little something about my experience there? <laughs> and I changed the name of the hotel 
to protect the not-so-innocent. After dumping my bags at Melbourne's Woolooroo Inn, a Best Western knockoff near the center of town, I ambled down Swanston Street to the waterfront, the Yarrow River, taking in the Aussie scene. A fly lands on my lip. I swat it away. Crossing Bourke Street, I spot the stone facade and copper dome of Melbourne's historic Flinders Street train station. Skyscrapers hover in the distance. So we've got our stone facade, our copper dome, high, uh, skyscrapers in the distance, another fly, another swat. A woman exits the train station and waves. Do I know her? A tattooed girl on a cell phone waves too. Then a guy on a skateboard. Something tunnels in my nose. Something skitters in my underwear. Flies are correcting, collecting on me as if I were a rotting carcass. I join everyone around me, cursing, waving, and swatting. I flee down Flinders Street and duck into the Melbourne Aquarium. Animal feeding time begins in five minutes. Then I notice the admission price, 25 minutes, $25. Outside again, the flies are feeding. I've just traveled through Southeast Asia, a land of deadly mosquitoes and terrifying diseases. A few Western bugs shouldn't faze me, but my T-shirt is now a vibrating vest of flies. I run bobbing and weaving by a movie theater. $12 for a Mel Gibson movie. I'm Jewish. We don't pay retail for Mel Gibson movies. <laughs> Back at the Wooloroo Inn, I confront the desk clerk as if she were somehow to blame. Uh, what's with the flies? I thought Australia was a civilized country. She says nothing and hands me a tourist info card, card entitled The Australian Bushfly. <laughs> Highlights. From October through January, bushflies are common in Melbourne. The insects feed on bodily fluids, tears, sweat, saliva, and mucus. Bushflies do not bite or sting. They lay their eggs in animal dung, not on humans. What a relief. The Aussie salute, a waving motion used by locals to repel the flies. Suggestion, wear a hat with a mesh net that covers the face. A sign behind the desk clerk advertises mesh net hats with the Wooloroo logo for $30. I don't pay retail for hats with logos. But you don't have to take my word for it. Another issue. So, uh, they, in Southeast Asia, you can a cheap place to stay. You can stay at youth hostels, or you could say something called a guest house. Now, when I heard the term guest house, I was thinking, you know, exposed wood, you know, plush mattresses. <laughs> Maybe the next day, you know, breakfast with uh, blueberry pancakes and authentic maple syrup from Vermont. <laughs> so my first guest house was in Phnom Penh. This was one that was recommended by Lonely Planet. And that's the lobby, and I, it's kind of, well, let me, let me read you. First, let's start with the Lonely Planet review. So it's called the King Guest House. Elvis lives on in Phnom Penh, in name at least. The range of rooms is as wide as the king's girth, 
in the later years of his life, and there is a huge restaurant and travel center downstairs, the Lonely Planet. So this was, they were recommending it. Um, can I read you my experience? It's after midnight, and the King Lobby is secured by a locked metal gate. I can just see the night watchman snoozing in a hammock draped with a ripped mosquito net. I tap on the gate. The man jumps up to let me in. I tip him a dollar. He gives me a little bow and climbs back into the hammock. As I start towards the darkened stairs, something lumbers under a couch, bolts past the hammock, and settles under a melamine end table. The creature is too large to be a squirrel and too small to be a Rottweiler. I crouch for a better look. It's a rat. A half-bald rat. I, I, I doctor that up a little bit. That's, that's I follow the expert's advice for encounters with Cambodian wildlife and look for threatening gestures. Teeth gnashing, hair bristling, back arching, foot drumming, growling, ear flattening, tail between the legs, and backward earth flinging with hind feet. The night watchman snores. The rat remains still watching me. I check for foaming mouth, cowering pups nearby, teardrop tattoos around the eyes. All clear, but the bald spot bothers me. I tiptoe to the staircase, giving the rat a wide berth. Sit, stay, I whisper. The nightman doesn't stir. So that was the king. And um, if you, you don't have to take my word for it, this is a book called Do Travel Writers Go to Hell? And it's about a lonely planet writer who comes clean. Uh, so what, he, part of the book is his, he, goes, he goes to Brazil and he's supposed to cover the country and you know, recommend places to stay and things to do and places to eat. And you know, the way apparently it works, Lonely Planet gives him some money, gives him a budget, and then sends him off. So this guy, young guy, gets down to Brazil. As you can see, he's having a pretty good time. After a week or so, he's blown all his money and he hasn't seen much of the country. So he just makes a lot of the stuff up. <laughs> so at this point in the trip, I'm kind of depressed. I'm lonely. I'm having a rotten, miserable time. I haven't contracted a single sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> I figure I'm going to die alone, and the sooner the better. So the first thing I do is I start eating off the food carts. Uh, one thing that was pretty tempting, a dollar for dinner, mm, I'll take a chance on it. So this is kind of a typical food cart. You know, it's like a hot, hot dog vendor. You know, it's on the big wheels. They've got a heating element that's soup. Uh, but, you know, most of the food's just kind of sitting out in the air, and they just throw it into the little boiling pot. So I started eating in Bangkok off the street carts. I ate up, up, up and down the coast of Vietnam, Cambodia. Never got sick. Never met anyone that did get sick from eating off the food carts. So if you're going to start sampling the local food, you might as well sample the local vintages. And this is Vietnamese snake wine. So has everyone heard of uh, the mezcal, the tequila-like drink from uh, Mexico where they, they put the little worm in the bottle? Vietnam, they're not screwing around. So this bottle is about this high, and there's an entire cobra in it. And this, this particular vintage, so there's, there's our cobra, and he's got a scorpion in his mouth. And you know, so the, this 
snake wine is supposed to have these magical properties. It's supposed to be great for the male virility. Uh, I sampled it. Didn't do much for my virility. I lived. It was fine. Kind of rubbery, snaky aftertaste, as you'd expect. Because so it's, yeah, it's, it's basically it's, it's rice wine with the cobra in there pickling. So I started with the food, the wine, and then um, in these countries they have, they call them adventure sports. So a, a lot of these countries, they don't have the same liability laws they have here. So you can do all this stuff that you probably couldn't do in the US. Uh, this was one activity, in, so New, New Zealand, there's two islands, there's a North Island and a South Island, and the South Island has a town called Queenstown, which has all, a lot of these activities. And one of, this is called riverboarding. So you've heard of whitewater rafting? This is whitewater rafting with no raft. Uh, basically, you have a, uh, a boogie board. If you guys need to go, that's OK. You might want to stay for the next video, though. Uh, so you're, uh, you're on this boogie. It's a giant kickboard. And you can see these guys are heading into the rapids. Thanks for coming. Uh, I tried this. I wouldn't do it again. Um, here's a, oops. Here's a photo of, uh, this is not me, this is somebody in the rapids, you know, you wear a helmet, looks like he's filming. The other thing I did in New Zealand, something called bungee jumping. So this is about 450 feet high. They bind up your feet with this cord. They walk you to the end of this little plank. And then you turn around and ask the guy, are you sure this is safe and your insurance is covered? And he really couldn't care less because he's just doing whatever he's doing. So you just jump. And when you jump, you yell, mommy. So you bounce up and down. So that's about 400, 450 feet. And you know, when you're done, the winch, they winch you back up to the platform. Um, I did this three times. Uh, the, I did a higher jump in uh, South, uh, South Africa, which was 660 feet. So you know the top of the hub in Boston? So that's, about, that's equivalent. You go up to the top of the hub, and then you just jump out the window. That's about, about the same. Um, I didn't have any problems with this. did it three times. I didn't see anyone that had any problems with it. Uh, people, some people would freak out on the platform, but they would eventually jump. I didn't find out until I get back that actually some people have had some issues. New Year's Eve, a 22-year-old Australian, Erin Langworthy's bungee jump over the Zambezi River has a certain style as she sets off. Whoa! Then disaster as her jumping cord snaps and she plunges into the crocodile-infested water. Oh, oh, she was slack. Um, Straight away, and I felt like I'd been slapped all over. She came to in the swirling rapids, but with her feet tied together, still not out of danger. I actually had to swim down and yank the bungee cord out of where it was caught into. Erin eventually managed to reach the bank of the river, where rescuers pulled her out, battered and bruised. But even then, her ordeal wasn't over. When I was first pulled out of the water, they got me on my back, and so all the water that I'd inhaled. Um, meant that I couldn't breathe, so um, I made them roll me onto my side, and that's when I started coughing out water and blood. The safari company that organized the jump calls it 111 meters of pure adrenaline on its website. But another look at Erin's jump shows just how lucky she was. Yes, I think it's definitely a miracle that I survived. Nazan Sadri, Al Jazeera. So I mentioned earlier that there was one thing I feared more than Anything else? 
Anyone ever used one of these? Yeah. Squad toilet, we got one. A few other people, for those of the, you that haven't, why don't you, can we read you a first-hand account? Inside the little room, I reach for a light switch and can't find one. I reach for the door and can't find one. <laughs> Against the back wall, there's a hole in the floor surrounded by, a, by raised porcelain footrests. Across from it, a saucepan floats in a plastic barrel filled with water. Something with legs and a tail skitters up the wall and onto the ceiling. A faucet protruding from the tiled wall drip drips into the plastic barrel. A boiling sensation intensifies deep inside me. I drop my pants and hover over the bowl. I grab the rim of the barrel with one hand for stability. With the other hand, I point myself back like a little hose. Money starts to slip out of my pockets. <laughs> As I go to catch the cash, my um, apparatus springs free and sprays my sandals, feet, and pants. <laughs> all I can do is let it all go. So I, I think you get the whole idea, but if you want to know more, you got to buy my book. <laughs> So this was all the trip, the pain, the misery, the suffering. It was actually good preparation for my next venture, which was... <laughs> Any writers out there? Okay, so you know exactly what I'm talking about? Now maybe you've had a different experience. So I, I mentioned on the trip, I spent a lot of time alone. Um, I'm a writer, so I started writing. And I blogged, and by the time I got back, I had 150 pages of catching and moaning and moaning and catching. And this was around 2007. And there was some other travel memoirs out, particularly this one. By 2007, she'd sold, she'd sold 5 million copies. Anybody read this? Yeah, so it's a, tra it's a travel memoir. Um, so, okay, she sold 5 million copies. 1% uh, is 50,000. Fine, I'm not, a, I'm not greedy. Um, here's another, this is another book that's on your list. This is a, a travel memoir written by a guy. So it's a similar story. Whiny guy goes out to the middle of the Pacific, and he catches and moans about the whole time he's there. Uh, very funny. But so, yeah, I was like, okay, so this, I work for a computer magazine. I can do this. So I signed up for writing classes, joined writing groups, attended overpriced writing conferences. And after a year and a half, I had a travel memoir. And I showed it to an agent, and the agent said, uh, Agent said, uh, actually, the, wait a minute, where are we? Yeah, okay, the agent said, uh, there's no market for travel memoirs. The thing that's hot right now, memoirs. Has anyone read uh, Running With Scissors? Okay, so the movie had just come out. Around this time, there was another memoir that came out that was, got a lot of attention. Anyone read this? Okay, so the story behind this, uh, this guy writes a novel, can't sell it, so he says, silly me, it's all true, it's a memoir. Big book deal, big money. He gets, uh, Oprah picks his book for her book club, and he's on, the, on Oprah's show, and they're chit-chatting, and he goes, uh, actually, I lied. So he gets big trouble, sells even more books. So I was like, okay, I can do this. I can write a memoir and lie in there. So... Uh, 
More writing classes? More writing groups? More overpriced writing conferences? I have a memoir, another year and a half. I show it to an agent, and the agent goes, eh. There's no market for memoirs unless you're a Kennedy. And I was like, well, I am Kennedy. Well, that didn't work, so I started working on a novel. More writing classes, more writing groups, more overpriced writing conferences. After another year and a half, I had a novel. And I showed it to an agent, and the agent said, you know what, this probably would make a good travel memoir. So at this point, I was like, Oh, oh, ah. But then I thought to myself, wait a minute. I just took a trip around the world. I survived this. I survived that. And I survived that. So I doubled down. I was going to write a novel. And I was reworking it. And I started reading bits and pieces of the novel around at open mics in Boston. And I, met at a, I was at a... Uh, party. I started talking to a guy who was a performer. He said, you know what, you've got enough material for a one-man show. So I worked with him, and after a year and a half, we had a one-man show. It was called The Chronic Singles Handbook. And uh, I performed it at, uh, they're called, anyone heard of a Fringe Festival? So it's, it's independent theater. There's, there's a circuit of these Fringe Festivals around the U.S., Canada, and the big one is in Edinburgh, Scotland. So I did, I did 25 of these. I did Edinburgh. Um, actually, let me just tell you, let me give you the little Tell you about the about the show. The Chronic Singles Handbook is about a chronically single guy who takes a trip around the world hoping to change his luck with love. Sounds kind of wholesome and sweet. You've heard of Eat Pray Love? This is nothing like it. Not even forget I even mentioned it. There's adult situations, adult language, and more adult situations. So it's twice your daily adult requirement for adult situations in one hour. However, it's based on a novel. So these are high-end literary adult situations. This is not the cheap, sleazy stuff. Let me just give you an example from the, from the show. Bangkok. Bang. <laughs> the name alone sounds skeevy. And the moment I get off the plane, I'm on high alert. I've read about the deep-fried tarantulas, tuk-tuk scammers, and locals that play volleyball with their feet. The decor in the airport doesn't help either. Smirking Buddhas, sneering Buddhas, a gang of Buddhas pummeling a three-headed snake. The airport bus drops me downtown on Sukhumvit Road. That's a boulevard that's supposed to be two blocks my hotel. On the corner stands a local woman. She's wearing a t-shirt that says, University of Nebraska. That's Nebraska with just one P. <laughs> The whole area is peppered with these little carts selling noodles and soup. I start to walk in the sooty, humid air. It stings like a lung full of red ants. Immediately, I'm lost. So I approach a guy. He's got a mossy, blonde beard growing down his sternum. He's wearing a fishing vest and shorts, and the chin strap on his wide-brimmed hat is pulled snug against his jowls. He looks like he's bracing for a typhoon. Excuse me, I ask. Do you know how to get to a street called Soy 38? You from the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I'm from Boston. Yeah, I'm from Texas. I was an MP back in Saigon. One of the last guys out. Last guys out. Wow. Uh, do you know, is it okay to eat any of these food carts around here? Oh, you don't want to eat around here. Soy cowboys, just a few subway stops. Subway stops. This whole Sukhumvit area is built on a swamp. 
I'm going to retire here. Retire here. Then he exhales into his hand and sniffs his breath. In less than two minutes, this guy has confirmed my worst fears about Southeast Asia. This place can do things to you. Permanent, mind-warping things. I put on my hat, tighten my chin strap, and walk <laughs> away. Walk away. <laughs> so that was a bit out of my show. And I did it at all these French festivals. Got some good reviews. Oh, okay, let me read you a couple. <laughs> Four stars. Ross's honesty makes the self-deprecating voyage of sometimes lurid self-discovery a lot of fun to watch. Winnipeg Free Press. A delightful show that kept the crowd laughing at all the right times. A fringe show that is worth seeing for the chronically single or very married alike. Orlando Fringe Festival. Sharply funny, some of life's tougher punchlines, a quality solo show, Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So at this point, I'm feeling pretty confident. Show's doing okay. Another year and a half's gone by. I finished the novel. It's 80,000 words, so it's, uh, Microsoft Word pages. That's 325 Microsoft Word pages. Book, that's about you know, 250, 275 book pages. But I'm done. Novel's done. Uh, the way this process works, actually, what, what do you write? Memoirs. <coughs> okay, okay so, you, so, you have to deal with, so you have to deal with the query letters. I'm sorry. Did you have to write a query letter? Yeah. Okay, so the, the way the process works, if you want to get a big publisher and the big money, you've got to get a literary agent. And to get a literary agent, you write a one-page synopsis and pitch for your book, and then you send it to them, and hopefully they're interested. So here's, uh, so the query letter has three parts. I'm going to read you just a couple of them. Uh, the first part, so the, my working title for the book was The Loneliest Planet. So I'm taking off on Lonely Planet. And um, so the first, first part of it is kind of position it in the market and what other, you know, quick description of it. So Dear Agent, my comedic novel, The Loneliest Planet, offers an unflinching look at how men feel about sex, love, marriage, and massage parlors. <laughs> the audiences include men seeking insight into their own psyche, women seeking insight into men, and anyone interested in a gritty, bittersweet romantic comedy. It should appeal to readers of Jonathan Tropper, Joshua Ferris, or Sam Lipsight. Anyone familiar with any of those authors? Uh, there was a, a movie called This Is Where I Leave You. That's, that was based on a Jonathan Tropper book. So they're, you know, they're whiny Jewish guys like me, so this, this, is, this is the market I was going for. So let the agents know where it is, what, what, where, where it fits in the marketplace. And then you have a short summary of the book. Some of it may sound a little familiar with my trip. The story follows the picaresque adventures. So the, the narrator, I used my first name. Uh, his name is Randall Burns. My first name is Randy, because in certain countries like Australia, South Africa, Randy has another meaning, which is appropriate for the book. The story follows the picaresque adventures of Randall Burns, 48, chronically single, and recently downsized out of a long-time job. He blows his severance on a trip around the world, hoping to change his luck with love. On the trip, Burns strikes out with women on three continents and suffers loneliness that would have broken Papillon. On the fourth continent, Burns accepts that he's going to die alone, and the sooner, the better. He bungee jumps, eats food from street carts, and visits a body spa named The Curious Finger. 
He lets go of his germophobia and his quest for a woman, woman and begins to enjoy himself. His ex-girlfriend emails. She's now on antidepressants and sorry for her past behavior. <laughs> Is his luck with love about to change? So that was my pitch, pitch for the book. I'm all set. Manuscripts done. Query letters done. So I sent it to 30 agents and none of them wanted it. I sent it to 40 more agents and none of them wanted it. I sent it to 30 more agents and none of them wanted it. So I sent it to a total of 110 agents. Seven of them requested the manuscript and then didn't want it. Um, I was going to send it to 120, but I just, got, I just got too worn out. And I got the 120 number from, I was at a writing conference. I was talking to a literary agent, and one of his clients had sent his query letter to 120 agents. This agent was number 120, and the name of the book was The Silver Linings Playbook. So, but I got, so I got to 110, and the, the way the process works, if you can't get a big publisher because you can't get an agent, you start contacting small presses. Smaller publishers, so smaller advances, smaller pub publishing runs, but you're your own agent. You're representing yourself. You send the manuscripts out yourself. So I sent it out to five small presses, and one of them wanted it. I got a call in February, these guys, late, late one night, I got a call from these guys, loved your book, uh, we want to buy it, we're going to give you a $1,000 advance, we'll send you a contract. So I get the contract in the, uh, my email, and as I mentioned before, I spent a little too much time on the internet. So I start doing some research on small presses and contracts. And I found this website called Predators and Editors. And they have an article, you know, fraud artists, scamming authors. I found another website called Writer Beware. And this is a publisher that's not paying their royalties. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, these small presses, you know, they're ripoff artists and they're scammers and they're sleazeballs and ripoff artists and scammers and sleazeballs and they're... Parasites, parasites, parasites. So I hired a lawyer. <laughs> so the lawyer goes through the contract, and he makes a bunch of suggestions. And I'm, you know, I'm getting a little freaked out. He's, you know, he's suggesting this, that, and the other thing. And I put together, you know, this piece of paper. If then that, you know, I'm preparing for every single possible scenario because I'm going to call them on the phone. We're having the big, the big negotiation. And I'm about to call the, uh, the publisher, and I was like, there's one more person I need to talk to, my father. So my father was in his 80s, small businessman his whole life. He knows how to negotiate. So I call him up, and I'm like, Dad, I got this big, big negotiation tomorrow. Do you have any advice? And his, his advice was, well, uh, how many other authors, offers do you have? None. Shut up and sign the contract. <laughs> so I signed the contract. The next step in the process is the publisher sends you book covers. Um, these guys only sent me one book cover, so that's a beer bottle in the middle. And I was like, you know, my, I've worked on this book for seven years, eight years, literary fiction. There's no beer bottles in literary fiction. That should be like a wine glass or a champagne flute, not a beer bottle. But the other thing they sent me was my author photo. So I showed, I showed the author photo to all my friends who also know nothing about publishing. And they were like, you know what? Why don't you tell them you want the author photo to be your cover? So it was this or this. 
So I'm ready for the big negotiation on the cover. I call my father, and he's not home. My mother picks up the phone. So I send her both of these images, and I'm like, yeah, Ma, you have any suggestions? And she's like, so, Mr. Big Shot Author, how long have you been in book publishing? Uh, Ma, I, I think it's like six weeks. How long have they been in book publishing? Uh, 35 years. Shut up, the cover's fine. <laughs> so the cover was fine. We're not done yet. They send me the contract, but they also send me a, they sent me a letter. And the letter says, dear author, before you sign your contract, so I'd already signed it, but this was in writing that they sent to me. Before you sign your contract, we wanted you to know what the book world is like. Generally speaking, books by non-celebrities sell between 700 and 1,500 copies. To even ensure that many sales, it is imperative that the pre-publication reviews be good ones. And up at the top, no reviews, no book. So the way the process works, three or four months before your publishing date, they send the book out to reviewers. So my book was supposed to come out in March 2017. November 2016, they send it out to a bunch of reviewers. November, December, December 26, 21st, no reviews. December 28th, no reviews. January 10th, I get a call from the publisher. Bad news. No review, no book. So I'm begging, I'm pleading, I'll, I'll buy the whole run. My parents will buy, will buy books. Uh, you know, and I'm in my therapist's office, I'm on the floor crying. And, you know, I, eight, seven, eight years of my life and no, nothing. And two weeks later, I get a call from the publisher. You got reviewed. Kirkus reviewed it. And then a couple weeks later, Booklist reviewed it. So, after all the diseases and the parasites and the guinea worms and the great white sharks and the bungee jumping and the query letters and the rejections and the agents and the contracts and the lawyers, I finally got my book. So uh, that's my show, but hold on for a second. Um, I have some giveaways, a little quiz. So this is a chapbook that's got samples from my show and from the book. Retail value, $5. Can you tell me what country the sharks were in? Australia. We have a winner. Australia. <laughs> that was the next question. It was, about, it was about the flies. It was the next question. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Mind reader. Uh, okay, if you, um, actually, if you have any questions, I'm happy to take them. Also, I have books for sale. Um, actually, one question I, I <laughs> often get is uh, people go, okay, you took this trip. Um, your book was originally, it was a travel memoir, then it was a memoir. How much of this thing is actually true? It's a novel, but how much, come on, really, tell me the truth. How much of this is true? 12%. 12%? So you have to <laughs> that sounds, 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 sounds good. 
That's the other right. 88% you had fun? Well, the other 88% of the book is made up. No, the, tri the trip was actually, I, the, I did have some fun on the trip. Um, but it was a little, a little more. A little more than 12%. I wouldn't do it again. You wouldn't would do it again? No. I'm not I would not travel four months by myself. No. At, at, I'm 61. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Did you pick the countries because it was windsurfing and because of the activities? Is that how you? I, that's the way it started. So I uh, every so I got laid off in May. Uh, every year I in, I took a two week vacation in September. So this was like okay, I don't have to be home at any time. So I was going to go windsurfing in Venezuela. I was going to go in Greece. I was going to go in South Africa because these are you know world renowned windsurfing places. Um, and I figured you know I'm already halfway around the world. I may as well just finish it. Um, I, you know, I'd seen all these Vietnam War movies, so I wanted to go see, you know, see Vietnam and Cambodia, and then, you know, Australia, right yeah, Australia, New Zealand, right? Yeah, you got to go buy them anyway. Uh, but yeah, four, I mean, four weeks is a long, at least for me. I have a cousin who travels for six months by himself; has no problem with it. But yeah, again, you don't know if you're configured to do this until you do it. Brand. They did. <laughs> yes. What was the story behind that? Uh, the other one was an actual brand. They actually said, <laughs> this, they just, that's just a made up. That's a made up. That's what made up. Or they would have gotten sued or something. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't worth the. Did you develop any friendships along the way? People you stayed in contact with? Um, I had a couple of people that I, was, I stayed in contact with for a couple of years. Yeah. But yeah, this was 2007. Right. Yeah. Did, um, nobody. You, I mean, what, when you travel out, then you tend to meet other travelers. You don't meet so many locals. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Especially if you're staying in hostels right. and that's guest right. houses. Yeah. and. Uh, For what a, if you have relatives in other countries, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. Actually, I did. Uh, South Africa, I had a cousin who was, uh, he was in a training program to be a travel guide. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, so he, he was working at some, one of the game reserves. <clears throat> so he took me out on two drives. Ended up, he stayed there for free, and yeah, yeah. but that, that was the only relative I had any place besides outside of the U.S. What was your original intent when you said, I'm going to do this? I mean, was it adventure? Was it vegetable? Was it to write the book after this? What was, what did I don't you know. think you were doing? You I, have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. You didn't have it. Nah, I have no You just did it. Yeah, it was, it was better than telling people I was, I was going to be collecting. You could say, look, I'm taking a trip around the world. And that, did you I, have to call in once a month from around the world to get your <laughs> to get your unemployment? No, I didn't. No, actually, I didn't. I didn't. I, didn't, I never got an unemployment. I never filed for unemployment. <laughs> really? Yeah, I got. I got a good severance package. Yeah, you have to be looking for jobs. Yeah, and I didn't. Yeah. Well, I know that. Yeah, I was. No, you have to call in once a month. Yeah. No, I was, <laughs> it doesn't matter where. Yeah. yeah no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't even bother. Didn't bother. Interesting. Uh, a little shop talk. Yeah. Author. Author. Um, permanent Press. I'd uh, published with a lot of different publishers in mainly the small yeah. presses. And that's the first time I ever heard of the clause that they will not publish your book unless you get pre-publication. Uh, uh, good good reviews. reviews, positive reviews. Yeah, positive. maybe they'll do an e-book and you keep your advance. But they said, yeah, we're not, we're not going to spend the money because you know, they, they, they do hardcovers. Okay, so they wouldn't... Yeah, it's expensive. So yeah, they're like you know, no, no, nobody you know, because they they're looking for pre-sales. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. yeah. 
No, that's that was that's that's how they've been in business for 35 years, and that's how they take chances on debut authors, small press runs. But you've got there's got to be some demand that's ahead of time. Stipulated in the contract that they. It was it was in that letter. So they sent me the contract, and then they sent me a letter that went with it. Oh, that went with it. Yeah. Okay. So you, if you had, all right. So you could have balked at that and not signed the contract. Correct. Yeah. But then, yeah, after all I'd been through, I was signing whatever, you know, pretty much whatever they sent me. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I, I double-checked. So there's a writing center in Boston called Grub Street. Oh, you know, I know. I've been, yeah, I know. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I'd been their member for a while, so I called them and said, you know, what, do you, what do you know about these guys? Um, and they said, yeah, they're, you know, they're legit. Are you, uh, do you live in Boston? I live, I live in Somerville. Oh, shit. I belong to a group of authors that meet every Saturday morning. Oh, yeah, I've been big, the bagel bars. <laughs> Yeah. Oh Long time ago. Yeah. Doug Holder. And yes, all I know Doug. Guys. Yeah. I'll yeah. be there this Saturday. Oh, okay. Five. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of early for me. Uh, <laughs> Nine in the morning? Yeah, I'm still asleep. Well, I'm there until noon, one o'clock. Oh, okay. Yeah. So now Thank that you. you've become independently wealthy, yes, right. Sales, <laughs> yeah. what's next? I mean, what is your. Uh, uh, well, this, okay, so this is, a, this is a new show I've been doing. I've done this. This is probably the eighth library that I've done. Okay. So, they, you know, they pay me. Not, yeah. not, Shitloads, but uh, yeah, they pay me for this. Um, typically, the libraries will buy a book. Hopefully, you guys will buy books. But yeah, no, this this is not paying for much of anything. Uh, but I'm working. On, I'm working on a second book. So, I, I, and I have a friend who. Uh, so she wrote her first two novels. Couldn't get an agent. Couldn't get a publisher. Third novel, she was like, "This idea is too good." It was a. Uh, a women's adventure. Uh, uh, basically, it's uh, deliverance with women. <laughs> deliverance with women. Yes, so that was the pitch. Wow. She got a big. She got a big book, multiple book deal. Agent. The book went to auction, which means multiple multiple uh, publishers wanted it. So the third book is maybe, maybe possibly the. I don't, know, I don't. Is this the third book? Is that the one that makes the big money? <laughs> I used to write textbook. I made money on textbook. Oh, that's a, yeah. And then I, on my memoir, it was with Algonquin. Oh, that's that's very pretty, prestigious. Yeah, and they paid pretty good up in front. Yeah. But since then, I've been doing fiction. I've published 14 books of fiction. Okay. No money. Oh, okay. No, small but, presses. I was even surprised they gave you an advance permanent press because typically small publishers, yeah. you don't see a nickel up in front. And, also, and uh, these guys, their, their specialty is uh, literary mystery. Yeah. So this, oh, was, this was not something they, this also could be, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they liked, they thought it was funny. Literary mystery, that's, that's, yeah. that's their specialty. And this is, this is comedy. Oh, so, yeah. that's it. Well, they must have really liked it. Yeah, um, which was interesting because, yeah, you, know, you get all, the, when you send all these letters out to agents, you know, three quarters of them don't even respond. And the ones that do, well, you know, if they do respond, yeah, you know, we didn't like this or didn't like that. Um, so it was nice. Why the title? God bless. Yeah, I was the same I, They didn't, so my title suggested titles. So when you send a book, you send them some ideas for titles. So mine was The Loneliest Planet. I thought that yeah, was clever. Planet. The other one was The Chronic Singles Handbook, which is the name of my show. And they thought they were too negative. So I'm on the phone with them, and they're, they're, just, they're, they're suggesting ideas. I didn't like any of theirs. And then they suggested this. Do you like I, it? And your mother said, okay. My mother said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, I thought it was fine. Um, with, with, God bless, was it Mr. Rosewater? Mr. Rosewater. Yeah, so that's... Uh, that's Scott Bonnegan. Yeah. Yeah. And I had the same experience with my father, Al Gonquin. Uh, my title was The Dream of Motion. 
And my book is actually a travel book. But huh? it's about a 12-year-old traveling with an alcoholic father for many for 12 years across the country. And it's and, a memoir. And it is a memoir. Okay. But they they didn't like the title because they thought the dream of motion sounded like maybe a book about bicycling or wow. or something. So they called it the next better place, which was a phrase they took from the book. But I've, I've never been keen on it. Yeah. To uh, this day. I like, I, I, she I, like, I, I, I like it. I like that. Yes, I do. I like it a lot. Does anybody like this title? I like it. It's, okay. well, it's, it's a little misleading. It's a little yeah, misleading. It's misleading. Yeah, well, yeah, that's so. Yeah, they got a beer bottle. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that helps a little. But, but it, sounds, <laughs> feel, it sounds like you're just going to Cambodia. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, well, they, the, the thing in Cambodia is like a pivotal point in the book. All right, so it's the other side of the world for you, for us. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, I, I get people like you know Cambodian societies contact me, and, I'm, and they're like, "Oh, would you want to come in and talk?" I'm like, "No, this is this is, this is, not, what, this is not what you're thinking." <laughs> did, did your job as a editor of PC Magazine, PC World, yeah, PC World, translate it all into this I, project? I don't know what your experience is, but I think journalism is the worst possible training for writing fiction because um, okay, journalism. You know, you pack all the, all the good stuff up front. And it's pretty standard. You, every paragraph, there's a topic sentence, and then everything under it expands on that. Fiction, the idea is to get people to the end, which is where the big payoff is. Uh, also, sometimes you want to hide in the middle of the paragraph what, what, what it's about. Um, so, this, yeah, this was, it was not helpful. I mean, I know how to put a sentence together. I know how to organize things. I don't get too upset when somebody rips it up because I, I have a woman that I that I pay to read my stuff, and she rips the crap out of it. But uh, you know, I've been through that before. But, yeah. writing, try writing academic books. I wrote 15, oh. 18 academic books, textbooks. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything is formulaic. Yeah, everything can't is structured, be. and and shifted into fiction. Yeah, um, that's okay. Which that's... was liberating. <laughs> <laughs> How many photos did you take? None. What? None. That, that, the one I have in there, uh, somebody this emailed me. Was a, a huge photography trip? Did you? No, well, one of the things was I didn't want to carry anything that could be stolen. Oh, anything stolen. Uh, this was also 2007. I did, take, I did take a cell phone with me, and it didn't work. Yeah, I spent all this money to get, the, get, you know, get it unlocked yeah. and buy this international plan, and most of the countries it didn't work. Oh, really? No, I didn't want to carry anything. So, even with the phone, was that? Even with the phone, well, 2007, I guess. Yeah, yeah I don't think they had. Yeah, I don't think it had. They didn't have the key. Now you can just do it with your cell phone. Yeah, but I, I wasn't. I, so I didn't bring any of the writing that I did. So the blog posts, I did them all at uh, internet cafes, which were everywhere. You know, even in Cambodia, there were places to go. So. Okay. I'll actually. Oh. I, I didn't think the picture of the youth hostel looked that bad. Did you stay at a lot of youth hostels? I stayed. Uh, I mean, it looked pretty. Yeah, you look like you're kind of young yeah. enough to be amongst. Oh, aren't you it sweet? Like <laughs> <laughs> actually, the, the one woman that was over. Yeah. So, so somebody else took that photo and then and emailed it to me. Yeah. But then, yeah, there was one woman over in the corner who was. I think she was also she in her forties. Yeah. 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 But the rest of them were all in their twenties. I mean, they were they were nice enough. They probably moved after you. Yeah, look at that, the old man. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, there's, you know, it, yeah, I just didn't have that much to talk. You know, so they're all talking about their roommates stealing their food, and I'm like, oh, actually, I own a place. I, <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't, didn't have a lot. In, didn't have a lot. And in did you worry your parents to death? 
Were they crazy worried? Uh, they were a little worried. Yeah. yeah. I didn't tell them too much until I got, yeah. got back. And yeah, I, I would email them. Actually, I don't even, I might have, yeah, I might have called them. Yeah, they were worried. Yeah, but Are they still around? They're still around. Oh, good. Yeah. Good for you. So, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I will let, let you guys go.